my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. The amount of people who are willing to come to D.C., to fly into D.C., to come out to engage in violent action, that was a small number when we look at the entire country, but it's a mass number of people. And we got tens of thousands of people around the country doing it. When you go on these chat rooms and stuff, you're seeing people say things like, I'm willing to die for this. I'm willing to kill for this. They're talking about bringing weapons places. They're talking about modifying weapons. It's something about Donald Trump's just whipping them up into a frenzy that's been able to really be an organizing agent. That's what's so scary about him personally. We're talking about a level of violence that's being committed to here that we haven't seen from a mass public like this before. With just days left in a presidential term that has been defined by chaos, bluster, and disregard for the American people, I watched in horror, as did the rest of the country, as enraged Trump supporters breached the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to demonstrate their capacity for violence. Rioters broke windows, they ransacked offices, Confederate and pro-Trump flags were carried throughout the building. There was an armed standoff in the House chamber, and when all was said and done, a woman was fatally shot, four others died, multiple injured. And just think about the fact that a U.S. Capitol police officer died due to injuries. He was beaten over the head with a fire extinguisher. It is not something any of us imagined we would ever see in our lifetime. If we need any sort of confirmation that right-wing radicalization is threatening our democracy, we got that confirmation on that day. I'm Stephanie Rule, MSNBC anchor, NBC News senior correspondent, and this is Modern Rules, a podcast from NBC Think and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, our goal is to get straight to the point because in these really complicated times, there's a lot we need to understand. And the only way we can move forward is to get smarter on these things. On this episode of Modern Rules, we're asking a pretty simple question. 
How did this mob form? And should we have seen it coming? My guest today says absolutely yes. Shane Burley is a journalist and a filmmaker. He's reported on and studied extremism in the United States for several years. He's also the author of Fascism Today. What is it and how to end it? Shane, I am so lucky you are here today. So let's please start with this rally. Where do these people come from? Who are they? These are not just formal organizations. This is not just the organs of the GOP, for example. It's not just like far-right organizations of the past. It's a diverse social movement that's coming across all around the country based on this weird allegiance they have to Trump as an individual. But what they're doing is coalescing around this almost messianic figure of Donald Trump, someone who promises so much and is expecting to deliver things far beyond what a politician could deliver. He's promising to change their lives as individuals. And so the promise that Donald Trump has built with these people goes far beyond what he can do in the government, which is why there's no reason to believe that they're disappearing when Trump leaves office. That rally turned into this mob of people storming the U.S. Capitol, one of the most sacred and important and theoretically secure buildings in our country. This mob of people wearing Nazi T-shirts and horns and uh, homemade fur pelts. They basically shoved themselves into the building, sent all of Congress and our vice president into hiding, and they vandalized the building. Who was this mob made up of? Young, old? Obviously, the conservative movement in general skews older, but there is a large number of young people that are sort of of a few intersecting constituencies. On, on the one hand, you have a lot of rural folks who are facing the kind of uh, economic effects of what rural America is going through right now. Um, you're seeing a lot of organizations that have sprouted up in the Trump years, Proud Boys, militia organizations, and quote-unquote patriot organizations that have gotten much, much bigger. The, the reality is that, that their far-right coalition is broad enough that it includes a strong, new-agey culture. This is not what we normally associate with the Republican Party. But there is a sort of crossover in the world of alternative medicine, crystal healing, things like that, with QAnon, because there's a common kind of conspiracy worldview. So it's not actually uncommon to go on these far-right websites and see tons of alternative healing stuff, acupuncture chiropractic, all kinds of stuff. It's a, a large collection of people whose real only association is a belief in Donald Trump and a belief that some kind of revolutionary answer needs to happen. And they're also bound together by deep nativist beliefs. There's a profound sense of mythology that drives them together, a sense of heroism, a sense that they are the main character of this story. Um, and I think that is also part of the mentality that gets people to break through those barricades, to attack one of the most heavily fortified buildings in the country, and to try and disrupt a, an election certification vote. When you look at the images of the Capitol, it is very upsetting to see people defacing that property. I have now looked at these photos, these videos for hours and hours. Can you please explain the aesthetic to me? The fur pelts, the horns. I think somebody referred to it as hillbilly burning man meets Jamiroquai. Like, I don't even understand. Like, how do you think I'm going to put this get up on with no shirt and paint my face and put horns on to go to a rally? I mean, in the same way that you think that storming the Capitol somehow stops an election. I mean, this isn't people that are based in like real political consciousness. I think people have been calling him the Q uh, shaman, the QAnon shaman. Yes. He's covered in Nordic pagan tattoos. They are generally... Uh, commonly associated with far-right movements that have taken up Nordic pagan imagery as sort of a, a callback to some kind of Northern European racial nationalism. The rhetoric has increased so dramatically in the last year, and most specifically in the last two months. 
all motivated by the belief that something profound is taking place in the country, like a cabal of people are taking democracy away from them, um, that their kind of action has become openly revolutionary. They see the utility in speaking a common nativist grievance-based anger. Um, and so that is useful to them. That gets people out into the streets. And, and when it comes to where they go now, it's going to shift from the electoral realm to the street. Um, and we're starting to see that in the post-election period where the primary function of these groups and these rallies is essentially to show violent force. So as someone who tracks this closely and follows the chat rooms and their pages and their extreme groups, when this happened on Wednesday, were you surprised? Oh, no, absolutely not. There is no reason to be surprised. I have been to dozens and dozens of these rallies over the years. Um, you know, I've seen reporters and activists attacked with real serious impunity, like seeing Trump call them out seeing the mass response, seeing the chatter on places like Telegram and, and Parler and other social media platforms, we should have known this was going to happen. All those people who participated on uh, Wednesday, they shut down the Capitol building. They messed up Nancy Pelosi's office. Her office has been cleaned up since then. And on that very same day, Joe Biden was certified. Do they consider Wednesday a win? Some do, because their goal was never getting something done. Their goal was showing power. Their goal was their ability to actually affect space. They can take over a government building. They can actually push things back. They can disrupt the entire organs of the federal government. They were able to shut down the Capitol building. I can't say a lot of movements have done that in any recent years. That's a big deal. Is the common thread in all these groups Trump? I interviewed an expert on cold, Sarah Hightower, and she kind of explained that people are basically traumatizing themselves with untruth. They're basically pumping themselves full of these stories that are incredibly traumatic if they were true, believing them and having it move them emotionally along this ladder. And so what's happening is all these kind of untruths are compounding on people and creating this deep sense of motivation. How do they organize Wednesday, for example, or any one of these events? How does it work? I mean, it might not be super sophisticated, but they all showed up. You know, in a way, it is sophisticated. In a way, it actually speaks to how people organize themselves in the 21st century through a kind of horizontal social movement. With older folks, it's oftentimes the Facebook groups. With the more militant folks, it's some of these new social media sites like Parler or, or Telegram. But basically, there there will be a few people who are a little bit more organized, calling together a rally. Everyone in these these groups that are very active, that they're able to see it. And then they kind of do it through the horizontal networks of calling people, setting up carpools, and doing research like this. We'll sit on a lot of these Facebook groups and see how they come together. And sometimes very large rallies will come together in a matter of days simply by someone saying, hey, we should go out there and you know, quote unquote stop Antifa or we're going to go stop these Black Lives Matter people. And then they will come out really quickly. And there's also these kind of militia or patriot-focused forums where people are very explicit about what their intentions are, where they'll plan violence, and they do it very, very quickly in a way that's kind of impressive and speaks to the way that social media can create spontaneous groupings of people very quickly. How reliant are they and how empowering are these social media platforms? Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely central. You can't do it without it. Facebook and Twitter have been especially hesitant to act for years. Um, and now I don't think they can put the genie back in the bottle. The autonomous nature of social media, it's very, very hard to identify ones that are problematic, particularly Facebook groups, which is really important for older demographics. People like my mother or my sister, I have experienced them falling for conspiracy theories that end up in their feed sort of masked as, you know, what starts as information for moms ends up something way more twisted and dark. 
And if those things were not allowed on Facebook, they actually would never, ever see them. The reality is, is that propagating profound falsehoods that victimize certain populations, that's dangerous no matter who's doing it. The willingness to allow Donald Trump to say what he wants because he's the president, those sorts of things need to end. And they need to be able to maintain those standards across the platforms, period. The reason people use Facebook and Twitter is because other people use Facebook and Twitter. And so I actually think that if Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, and the other major social media channels maintain a certain level of standards about these things, it actually will have an effect. Who are the masterminds behind these untruths who then create this? It'd be a lot easier if we could say someone is actually lying to these people. They're making up a conspiracy theory and telling it, but it's unfortunately more complicated than that because the reality is that people believe these things. The reality is, is that, that one person learns it from another person, escalates it through a game of telephone that's happening across millions of people. There is no central place here. Conspiracy thinking has become so out of control that there is no way to kind of rein it in on the right anymore. I can tell you, after Wednesday went down, you saw all sorts of Republican voters, like my parents, humiliated by it. When my parents saw that was the first time they finally said enough is enough. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are kind of turning on Trump, enough's enough. But also over 35% of Republicans think that there was some kind of funny business in the election with zero evidence, which is the entire core of this narrative. So that's a mass. We're talking about tens of millions of people that are in agreement about a conspiracy narrative propagated by Donald Trump. We'll be back after the break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Let's think of other protests that we see. I usually have a better idea of what they're protesting for. 
I know what women's marches are for. I know what marches for science are for. I know what pro-life marches are for. I looked at a crowd of people, many of whom were wearing Camp Auschwitz t-shirts and Nazi garb, cheering on Ivanka Trump, who is Jewish. So what exactly is binding these people together and following Trump? Like I, that's what I don't understand they're, they're protesting for. Yeah, to set things on fire. That's what they're protesting for. This is something that I think the GOP hasn't had a real connection to in the last several years, which is what does a militant revolutionary movement look like? Well, it's not going to look like policy reform. And within that, to have a movement that large with being revolutionary, they're not all actually going to agree on what that new future world looks like. And so instead, what there is in Trump is a tacit coalition of people who want to set fire to things, who want to burn it all down, who want to attack the status quo. What this does is actually create a pressure valve. And so the power that Trump has now, the power that these people have now is in physical space. They can take things over. They can invoke violent pressure if they want. They can create large mobs as they did in D.C. So I think it's debatable whether or not that's going to have an effect on policy in the next few years. But he is going to basically have the ability to hold down people in communities with a real threat of violence by mobilizing this huge army. And in a lot of ways, that actually is what, what it has in common with revolutionary movements historically. Does the number of right-wing extremists, is the real number smaller than the perceived number? Because of social media, because of the president, it sort of gets amplified and amplified, especially because the beliefs are so crazy, they're very, very popular to talk about. But when you get down to it, Republicans lost in the midterms in 2018. The president lost the election in 2020. Republicans lost control of the Senate. So is this Trump faction actually that big? You know, historically, if we were talking about neo-Nazis and uh, the alt-right, it actually is pretty small. It's bigger than it has been in decades, but it's still pretty small. But what we've seen happen is where certain ways of thinking that would have been only on the extreme right have now moved their way into GOP mainstays. And so we're having a mass radicalization event because the ideas that are motivating the Trump base right now are so out there that they would have been on the fringes of the internet before. And so I think in that way, extremism has become a mass phenomenon in the conservative movement, and it's going to drive an even bigger swath of the public as they confront social issues from a conspiracy mindset rather than a fact-based one. Talk to us about Portland. What have you seen, especially over the last few months, as you've watched tensions there rise? Is that city sort of the, the canary in the coal mine for the rest of us for what's to come? I think that's a good way of phrasing it. So the dynamic of Portland is important because it's considered a deep liberal city uh, that has a long history of racist violence around it. A center of the KKK in the 20s, a really serious problem with neo-Nazi skinheads in the 80s and 90s. Oregon itself has a racist history of being sort of a, an intended white ethnostate, um, having a, a divide between the rural areas and the urban areas. And it has a deep problem with things like gentrification and racial politics in the city. Anytime you're having this sort of blue oasis inside of a red kind of uh, container like we have in Oregon, you're seeing people kind of surround from the outside communities. And so this seeing far-right groups in that area is not uncommon. But the clashes have only escalated over the several years. So groups like Patriot Prayer, which is another far-right organization based generally out here, and the Proud Boys have been coming to Portland 
once a month, once every two months for these violent clashes for the last several years. And so we're seeing literally blood flowing in the streets, people being very seriously hurt, hospitalized, some people end up killed. And this has been going on for quite a long time. The entire function of which these groups coming out is to sort of declare their autonomy. So they're bound together by grievance and a leader who's amplifying their grievances. But where do they go from here? These people just basically shoved their way in. In general, is law enforcement underestimating the will or the capabilities? Absolutely. This is true in Portland, but it's really true in places around the country. Left-wing counter demonstrators are always more numerous, usually, because we're talking about you know, nonprofits and unions and other groups part of them. The police take an incredibly light hand with the far-right protesters and an incredibly heavy hand with the left-wing protesters. Um, and this is a pattern that has repeated itself. There's a number of things that, that, that belie that, that the police generally see the far-right protesters as less radical, that there's a historic connection between police and far-right movements, both locally and around the country. Then let's talk about that willful ignorance, because there were lots of videos from people from the riots who said, oh, the police were cool to me. And, uh, you know, they, they directed me to Chuck Schumer's office or they they walked me out. I mean, they walked out like they were, you know, going on a tour of the Capitol. When you actually looked at those police officers, they were not equipped to handle this mob. There's tons we could have done and we chose not to. Why is that? There has been generally this belief that these right-wing groups are just normal Americans trying to, I don't know, protect the country. Um, and so I think what we see in D.C. is just the belief that these are Trump supporters. They're just conservatives. They're here sharing their voice like anyone does and doesn't see the potential for violence. And because of that, they have been given allowances that left wing groups never would or groups led by communities of color never would. Part of it, I think, is the structural racism in law enforcement where communities of color are seen as more threatening when they're in mass groups protesting than largely white movements are. And to not see the potential for violence when we're able to see armed rallies happening around the country is willful ignorance. The fact that law enforcement hasn't taken these groups seriously is leading us to a situation when they were able to grow without any pushback and now are at a position when it would be actually hard to reverse time on this. There are now QAnon members or sympathizers actually in Congress. Based on your reporting and what you study, do you see this as something that's going to be growing? QAnon believes that they are freedom fighters. The, the entire model of QAnon is to take a bizarre story and put you right at the center of it. This world would fall apart if it wasn't for you intervening on it. There is a narrative about history that requires messiahs to come in and change things as a deus ex machina, and that's the entire function of QAnon. So of course they're not extremists. The extremists are the pedophile cabal that are taking over the government. Those are the real extremists. You're just a regular American. But what happens, right, when they say, you know, the day is coming on April 1st? What happens when these days, these times pass and none of the things they predict come to fruition? The same thing when the apocalypse never came after the preacher predicted it. You know, it's you, you look back and say, oh, you know, it's because of this reason. It was because actually he's doing a longer game. There's all kinds of ways of explaining it. Um, the failure of a prophecy has never stopped the most uh, pious from continuing their work. Other countries watched what happened at the Capitol in horror, but extremism is not unique to the United States. What is it like around the world? 
yeah, this is not just happening in the U.S. This is happening with the AFD in Germany. This is happening with UKIP. This is a serious ideological change, a response to the crisis that we're entering in in the 21st century. And so there is a lot of ideology that's driving this. And then there's also a lot of grifters that will help to take that ideology and shoot it through the stratosphere. So what happens when they don't have a sponsor in the White House? Anytime you see these far-right movements escalate, they have a point when they start to contract, either from their own failures. And at that point, when they see that their movement has been unsuccessful in meeting its goals, that's when you start to see seemingly impulsive acts of violence. And it's a positive thing when their movements shrink. But there's also a, a flip side to that, which is that these are the, the point in which you start to see desperate acts. And that's what actually worries me about 2021. We have every reason to be hopeful, though. I mean, we saw much larger protests against police violence. We saw larger social movements of young people coming out. We have all the tools. They are all here. We just have to do them. And so knowing that, as that's what keeps me hopeful through dark times, like watching the Capitol be overrun by the far right. I have to admit, I was surprised that Shane ended on a hopeful note. The demonstration of violence that we saw at the Capitol is a reminder that the disastrous elements of Trump's presidency will likely have very destructive consequences. On this podcast, we want to leave you with some time to think. Something Shane left me thinking about is this. Maybe we do have a reason to be hopeful. No doubt the 45th president has pushed the boundaries of many of our most precious institutions to the brink, but maybe they've held. Wednesday was a terrible day, but you know what happened that night? Joe Biden was certified as the next president of the United States. And while right-wing extremism is on the rise, maybe it's in response to another growing movement, one that gets less attention, but one that's built around equality, compassion, and progress. I'm Stephanie Rule, and you're listening to Modern Rules, a podcast from NBC Think, MSNBC, and iHeartRadio. This podcast is hosted by me, Stephanie Rule. Mike Biet and Katrina Norvell are executive producers. Meredith Bennett-Smith is senior editor for NBC Think and our editorial lead. The podcast is engineered and edited by Josh Fisher. Additional production support provided by Charles Herman, Rachel Rosenbaum, and Lauren Wynn. And special thanks to Catherine Kim, our global head of digital news, right here at NBC News and MSNBC. For more thought-provoking analysis, visit NBCNews.com slash think. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.